This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. In June 2009, I sat in an auditorium in Cairo, Egypt, and watched President Obama deliver a speech we'd spent weeks writing together. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. It was a high-wire act. Five years after the U.S. invaded Iraq and basically broke the Middle East, here was a U.S. president trying to reset relations in the region. We called the speech a new beginning. You must place the interests of your people and the legitimate workings of the political process above your party. Without these ingredients, elections alone do not make true democracy. Thank you. We got a lot of praise for that speech. But it wasn't until years later that I learned its biggest impact didn't really have much to do with the words I'd written and had a lot to do with the identity of the guy speaking. Rula Jabril is a writer and foreign policy analyst. She was a TV reporter in Cairo at the time. I remember my assistant, Muhammad, who was 25. So he was, you know, helping in studios, bringing us coffee and other things. And he kept listening to President Obama's speech. And I didn't understand why. He kept repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. So I was, there was a moment where I was like, okay, you have to explain to me. You listened to it at least 80 times. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Madame, um, this man has our skin tone. This man's father was a Muslim like us. This man can be a president in his country and we cannot even vote. So it inspired millions of people across the Middle East and across the world, probably, to think that they can take their lives in their own hands and challenge regimes. And they did. In 2011, the Arab Spring began, after a Tunisian street vendor set himself on fire to protest corruption and oppression. Egyptians like Mohammed rose up, demanded democracy, and ousted Hosni Mubarak, a dictator who'd ruled for decades. And they really thought President Obama will back them on this because the message was clear. We're changing our foreign policy. We're changing this chapter where we look at you as irrelevant and we talk only to the regimes. President Obama talked to the people. He was the first president to address the people, not the regimes. In 2011, the Obama administration did back the Egyptian people, not the Egyptian regime. That is, until we didn't. And instead of a new beginning, things in the Middle East just kept getting worse. I'm Ben Rhodes, and welcome back to Missing America, a look at the political diseases spreading across the world in the absence of American leadership. This week, the war on terror and the endless wars it has spawned, how we infected the Middle East with them, and why we've been unable to heal the wounds they've opened. We'll learn how even under a progressive president, America's overarching focus on fighting terror undermined our support for democracy. And how Trump, despite his isolationist rhetoric, has only plunged us deeper into the quicksand. I mean, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 and how we've responded to it is sort of the textbook of what not to do. Then, some hope 
as we hear about steps that could lead us out of the quagmire on this episode of Missing America. To give you an idea of the collateral damage our Middle East policy can cause, I want to introduce you to another young guy who was inspired by the Cairo speech, Mohammed Sultan. He's a human rights activist, born in Egypt, but raised since age seven in the USA. In 2011, he was a student in Columbus, Ohio. I was at Ohio State, and for a long time, I struggled between the Egyptian part of my identity and the American part of my identity. I, the American part of my identity voted and, and volunteered for campaigns and voted for my local and sheriff and local representatives all the way up to the highest office in the land. And then I had this far-fetched dream that someday the Egyptian part of my identity could enjoy the same freedoms and, and liberties that the American side did. But whenever he visited Egypt as ruled by Mubarak, it seemed pretty clear that his dream would never happen. That dream became more and more far-fetched until 2011, and I'm sitting there at Ohio State University watching on my iPhone the protests break out, these Egyptians, best and brightest, taking to the streets. January the 25th, 2011, the Arab Spring spreads to Egypt with a day of rage. Freedom, and we're going to take our freedom. I had to be there, so, you know, talked to my professors, got permission, and, you know, I booked a flight and went to Tahrir. That'd be Tahrir Square in Cairo. By the time Mohammed arrived, hundreds of thousands of protesters were gathering there, 24-7, in a show of force against Mubarak. And then, on February 11th, he joined a march to Mubarak's presidential palace. For me, the, the moment that Mubarak stepped down, I was actually at the presidential palace, right there up front at the protests. And when the announcement finally was made that he was stepping down, and everyone was chanting, raise your head up higher in Egyptian, it had a completely different meaning for me. Because for the first time in my life, the pride in my Egyptian identity had just been refilled and revived. And that dream was finally coming together. and I. And I was there not just to witness it, but I was there to partake in that dream becoming a reality. It seemed like the beginning of something big, maybe a wave of democracy that could roll across the Middle East. A year later, a man named Mohamed Morsi did indeed become Egypt's first democratically elected president. But just a year after that, he'd be ousted by his own military. And for the crime of speaking out about it, Mohamed Sultan would be thrown into an Egyptian prison. For Egypt and for Sultan, it was a head-spinning fall, from hope to despair. In a few minutes, I'll tell you how it all unfolded. But first, I need to give you some background. Because while the problems of the Middle East aren't all America's creation, we've helped perpetuate a cycle of authoritarianism, war, and radicalism there for decades. Imagine if a foreign power gave your government over a billion dollars a year, knowing that it'd be used to oppress you. That's what our country has done in Egypt. In fact, Egypt gets more financial assistance from America than any nation on earth except Israel. Why? Partly it dates back to the Camp David Accords. Egypt promised to help keep the peace between Israel and the Arab world, so we help pay for Egypt's security but it's also part of a decades-long American policy to keep the Middle East, quote-unquote, stable by supporting repressive governments like Egypt's and Saudi Arabia's 
so long as they align with U.S. interests, which, to put it bluntly, amounts to keeping the oil flowing and the terrorists away. Rula Jabril says it should be no surprise that this eventually turned Arab sentiments against America. So Middle Eastern foreign policy have always been about authoritarian stability. That was the approach. Whatever stable regime we have there, we will back that regime regardless it's human right violation, regardless not understanding that if you don't tie your issue of foreign policy in terms of the rule of law, human rights, and justice, you will always have backlashes, period, simple. In fact, Rula argues, we actually helped create anti-American extremists. When autocrats financed by us jailed their Islamist enemies in brutal prisons. Bin Laden, Zawahiri, Sayyid Qutb, and all of the above, all of these masterminds of jihadism, they are the byproduct of those regimes. That those regimes' policies pave the ground for a generation of people to be radicalized. Their prison cells birth these radicals. Sayyid Qutb, Egypt, Zawahiri, Egypt, Baghdadi, Iraq, Zarqawi, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, Jordan. Rula says it was only a matter of time before some of them attacked the United States. It goes back to Zawahiri's book, Milestones, the most read book in the Middle East as we speak now. What does it talk about? Unleashing jihads against basically these Arab rulers and whoever backs them, whoever supports them. That happened, of course, on 9-11. And in response, George W. Bush's administration managed to make things worse. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. As we know, George W. Bush used 9-11 and his war on terror to justify two invasions. One in Afghanistan to root out al-Qaeda and topple the Taliban. And another in a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. I think it was the single largest foreign policy debacle that our country has ever engaged in. That's John Brennan former CIA director and White House counterterrorism advisor. It was wholly unnecessary. And I I do believe that there were individuals who came in with President George W. Bush who had a predetermined policy course that they wanted to pursue. Unfortunately, they pointed to the 9-11 attacks as being a reason to go forward with that. But that American invasion of Iraq was the catalyst then for subsequent events that not just led to the chaos that ensued inside of Iraq. Events like the formation of al-Qaeda in Iraq, a jihadist group created in direct response to our invasion. It later became ISIS. So I do uh, fault the United States for that very unfortunate decision to go into Iraq. It had not just dramatic impact, negative impact on U.S. United States reputation in the area, but also on stability throughout the region. It is so difficult to repair the damage that was done. That damage is impossible to overstate. Thousands of Americans and over 100,000 Iraqis dead. Trillions of dollars spent, that's plural, trillions. 
the principal beneficiary in the Middle East, was a country hostile to America, Saddam Hussein's arch nemesis, the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Iraqi people suffered horrific losses that continue to this day. And another casualty was American credibility. Bush had sold the war as an attempt to stop Saddam from using weapons of mass destruction, which turned out not to exist. Then he tried to frame it as an effort to promote democracy, which made it seem like democracy was something America imposed at the barrel of a gun. And at the Obama White House, it weighed pretty heavily on our minds as we watched those protests unfold in Tahrir Square in February 2011. We watched Egyptians calling for an end to Mubarak's reign, trying to claim democracy for themselves. And even then, we were divided over what to do about it. Should we stick to the standard American script and declare support for Mubarak? We'd retain a known ally, but then he'd crack down hard and kill his own people. Or should we support the people in the streets and call for Mubarak to step down peacefully without knowing where a democratic revolution would lead? Obama sided with the voices calling for change. And what I indicated tonight to President Mubarak is my belief that an orderly transition must be meaningful, it must be peaceful, and it must begin now. It was one of my best days in the White House. It felt like the new beginning we'd imagined in Obama's Cairo speech. Not just for Egypt, but for America, too. We trusted the people instead of despots who subjugated them. But suffice to say, it made other despots around the Middle East very worried, especially when Egyptians chose Mohammed Mursi as their first democratically elected president. He was an Islamist, exactly the kind of leader Middle East autocrats have feared. Which takes us to Tahrir Square, a year later, July 3rd, 2013. President Morsi was ousted by the Egyptian military. A spokesman now tells us he's been arrested. If you remember this moment, you may remember being confused. Hadn't Egypt just gone through a democratic revolution? Then why was its elected president getting forced out by the military? And why did so many Egyptians seem to be celebrating? Among the people who were confused was Mohammed Sultan, who'd now graduated from Ohio State and moved to Egypt help his mom recover from cancer. I went to Egypt and I kind of just focused on my mom and work until July 3rd happened and I saw that dream that I had in 2011 kind of get reversed in the military coming back in the political space so aggressively. Now, Mercy hadn't turned out to be Sultan's idea of a perfect leader. Mercy had tried to amend Egypt's constitution to give himself broad new powers. Secular Egyptians worried he'd turn the country into an Islamic state. But whatever Sultan's feelings about mercy, he didn't think a military takeover was the answer. And I thought, that didn't represent me. Um, I didn't mind if Morsi left through a democratic mechanism, but I definitely wanted it to be through a democratic mechanism, not through a coup. So he started attending protests and live tweeting about the new government's increasing brutality against protesters. The tweets went viral. Then came the massacre at Cairo's Rabah Square. The sheer scale of the violence took everyone by surprise, including journalists. This was something the Egyptian government did not want the world to see. A thousand protesters were killed in a single day. Sultan was shot in the arm. 
He's sure because he'd been targeted as a troublemaker. 11 days later, I'm at my dad's house in the Maadi suburb of Cairo and with three journalist friends and, uh, you know, state security police storm our house and they arrest us. And the guy kind of looks at me, takes my American passport, the general that was there, and he's like, you think this is going to save you? And it's not going to do anything for you. Sultan was thrown into prison. He was tortured. His jailers encouraged him to commit suicide. I still wake up today, you know, frantically in the middle of the night to like the sound of shaking keys or slamming doors because it stays with you. And all of that happened to me, and I'm an American citizen. You can just imagine what 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt are going through right now for daring to have the same dream that I had, the, the, the most basic universal right to self-determination, to a dignified life. Meanwhile, a general, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, became Egypt's dictator. And instead of backing people protesting this, like we did in 2011, the Obama administration wouldn't even call what happened in Egypt a coup, even though that's exactly what it was. What had happened? Why hadn't the U.S. stood up for democracy? I hated and opposed the decision at the time, but I understood why it was made. And it, of course, goes back to our endless Middle East conflicts, that futile pursuit of stability. If we acknowledge there had been a coup, we'd have to stop sending Egypt billions of dollars in military aid. That would have alienated the new military dictatorship. And we needed them to help keep the peace with Israel and help us in our war on terror. So we pick stable authoritarianism over Islamist democracy. Rula Jabril says that was a false dichotomy. We could have made another choice, like brokering a compromise between Mercy's Islamists and secular politicians like Mohammed al-Baradai. Look, I was in Cairo during that period on and off. I think we needed to push harder for both sides yeah. to come together. I remember talking to the Islamists, to, to Morsi. They were so scared of the United States. They were willing to compromise. We did not push on them to compromise and create power-sharing formula where they have with them Al-Baradei and others. But there was another factor at play. The coup had actually been financed by America's other two closest Arab allies, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, both regimes with enormous influence in Washington, both worried the U.S. might abandon them if their people rose up and demanded democracy. So they drew a line in Egypt. They funded anti-mercy media campaigns. They paid people to turn out in the streets and protest them. Then they pledged billions of dollars to support the new military government and dismissed anyone who dissented as jihadists. Rula says that's a tactic that's been adopted by others in the Middle East ever since. I mean, look at, for example, Assad. If I think of Assad, why did Assad start releasing jihadists from prison? Because he wanted to frame the conflict as me against these jihadists. It's not me against pro-democracy activists. So he started releasing jihadists because he wanted to frame the conversation, especially to the West that was so fearful of jihadists. Like, okay, you know what? I am what's standing between you and these jihadists. So you have to support me. And in Egypt, that's why actual democracy activists, people like Mohammed Sultan, had to be silenced and jailed and labeled as jihadis themselves. Sultan spent nearly two years in prison. But it turns out that officer who originally came to arrest him was wrong. Sultan's American passport did matter. After an outcry from U.S. statesmen like John McCain, 
in a direct plea from Obama to Egypt's new leader. Sultan was finally freed, but not before he staged a hunger strike and not before he experienced something that, to me, epitomizes just how absurd America's Middle East policy really is. You know, when I had heard about Senator McCain speaking out on my behalf or gave a floor speech or whatever, on that same day, an ISIS recruiter was brought into my cell and I was not allowed to talk to anyone or anyone was allowed to see me. And he was trying to convince me that, like, this nonviolent hunger strike doesn't work, all of that. Yes, an ISIS recruiter. So the same Egyptian government to which we send over a billion dollars a year to fight terrorism was letting terrorist recruiters into its prisons to try and breed more terrorists. Presumably so there'd continue to be terrorists. For us to pay Egypt to help us fight. This is the insanity our endless wars have created, incentivizing everyone involved to keep the wars going forever. How do we break this cycle? The steps we need to take, up next on Missing America. Stay with us. Missing America is brought to you by Sunbasket. If you're looking for fresh dinners that taste great, are good for you, and take zero effort, Sunbasket delivers fresh and ready meals that are fast, fresh, and delicious, and heat up in just minutes. Sunbasket meals are made with organic fresh produce, sustainable seafood, and meals that are free of antibiotics, hormones, and steroids. The chefs have won Michelin Awards and a James Beard Award. So take the night off and let them cook for you. You've heard me talk on this podcast about how amazing these meals are. Papardele pasta with wilted spinach, sweet peas, and fresh ricotta. Southwestern turkey and sweet potato skillet. Cauliflower, mac and cheese, and more. What I like about Sunbasket is the diversity of the food that you'll find there on their website. The last thing I had was a ginger chicken and bok choy salad. The meals come freshly prepared and heat up in as little as six minutes. They're ready to heat and eat, which means no mess in your kitchen. They have paleo, vegetarian, Mediterranean, and gluten-free options too. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com missing and enter promo code missing at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash missing and enter promo code missing at checkout for $35 off your order. Sunbasket.com slash missing and enter promo code missing. Missing America is brought to you by Policy Genius. September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month. But with everything going on right now, you might not be aware that it's even possible to buy life insurance at all. The good news is, it's still easy to shop for life insurance right now. And if you have loved ones, depending on your income, you probably should. Right now, you could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for a decade or more, those savings really start to add up. What is Policy Genius? It's an insurance marketplace built and backed by a team of industry experts. Here's how it works. Step one, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Step two, apply for your lowest price. Step three, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance company. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll take care of everything. 
They even have policies which allow eligible customers to skip the in-person medical exam and do it over the phone. That is less stressful in any circumstance. It's especially less stressful in a pandemic. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So if you need life insurance, head to policygenius.com right now to get started. You could save $1,500 or more a year by comparing quotes on their marketplace. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Missing America is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. These are challenging times to own a business. You are dealing with an historic pandemic. You've got an erratic government response to that pandemic, including from Congress. You've got employees who either have to work from home or if they come to work, they have to deal with social distancing requirements, mask requirements. On top of that, it's just hard to find people to fill new roles, especially when there's so many choices. Monica Starks could relate. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, the GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com missing. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes after she posted her job because he was a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, free at ZipRecruiter.com missing. That's ZipRecruiter.com M-I-S-S-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com missing. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It may sound strange, but sometimes Donald Trump says things that are hard to disagree with. Great nations do not fight endless wars. Seems pretty good, right? There's more good news. Trump's got a plan. The plan is to get out of endless wars. Right. There's just one problem, though. There are a lot more American troops in the Middle East today than when Trump took office. See, Obama may not have ended the war on terror, but he did withdraw 150,000 troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. Trump has sent an additional 20,000 U.S. troops to the Middle East. He's also doubled down on American support for authoritarian allies, calling Egypt's military leader my favorite dictator. And he's basically outsourced America's Middle East policy to the Saudi crown prince who ordered the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's a great honor to have the crown prince with us. Saudi Arabia has been a very great friend and a big purchaser of equipment and lots of other things. And we've become very good friends over 
a fairly short period of time. In other words, if you're looking for a new beginning in the Middle East, it won't be coming from Trump. But what hope do we have to ever extricate ourselves from these endless wars? I have some ideas. Step one. We've got to prevent the next Middle East war. The one Trump was eagerly ginning up before the coronavirus came along. The one with Iran. Tens of thousands of Iranians on the streets of Tehran. This is after the United States killed Iran's most powerful military and intelligence leader in an airstrike. What is the strategy? Mm-hmm. Is this a, going to be an accidental slouch into a war in the Middle East? or A war with Iran would be more than a little ironic. After all, we made that country a powerhouse in the region by taking out its biggest enemy, Saddam Hussein. The better alternative to jumping into yet another quagmire would be to reinstate our nuclear deal with Iran, the one Obama brokered without firing a shot and that Trump tossed out. That could help stave off this war and help us extricate ourselves from others, like the one in Yemen, where Trump insists on giving Saudi Arabia a blank check of U.S. support for its proxy war with Iran that has put millions of lives at risk. Chris Murphy is one of the Senate's leading progressive voices. Reestablishing that dialogue with Iran is important, not just because it may ultimately get us to a nuclear agreement that makes the region safer, but also because it's just better in general to have that line of dialogue to make sure that small-scale military confrontations don't escalate into war, to be able to work on projects like Yemen, which you just can't do from the U.S. perspective if you don't have a line into the Iranian foreign ministry. So just reestablishing that diplomatic pathway will be really important to protect a lot of different interests for the United States in the region. In fact, Murphy says, sending diplomats into the Middle East is pretty much always a better idea than sending troops, even if there are powerful interests that profit off of war. You know, every forum that I do with a big Washington think tank is sponsored by one of these defense companies that is really glad to have troops deployed on the ground in the Middle East. There's an industry in Washington devoted to the idea that every Middle East problem has an American solution and likely an American solution that involves troops. There is absolutely no evidence over the course of the last 70 years that that is in fact true. The American military has been dispositive in many places around the world, but it has not in the Middle East, especially in the last 20 years. And in fact, American troops more often than not when deployed to the Middle East make the situation worse, not better. And so I think the first challenge for the next administration is to pay attention to history instead of the Washington foreign policy establishment, which in many ways is paid for by the very industries that benefit from more U.S. military engagement in the Middle East. So once we've implemented diplomatic alternatives to more Middle East wars, step two, we make it harder for Trump or any president to launch these wars in the first place. The House will be in order. The prayer will be offered by our chaplain. September 14th, 2001, three days after 9-11, the House of Representatives gathered to debate a special AUMF, authorization for the use of military force. It would allow the president to use force against, quote, 
Those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the 9-11 attacks. That's a lot of potential enemies. The authorization had no expiration date. It was debated for all of five hours. Congresswoman Barbara Lee spoke before the vote and urged caution. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. But she cast the only vote against the AOMF. The Senate approved it unanimously. And guess what? It spiraled out of control. U.S. officials have invoked it dozens of times under the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations to justify military actions in countries across Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. In 2001, Barbara Lee ended her speech with a quote from a reverend. As we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. I'd argue it's time Congress take that to heart and replace the AUMF with something more narrowly tailored and definitely not open-ended. No president should get a blank check to send the military anywhere for basically any reason they choose. And by the way, this isn't some unattainable pipe dream. Last year, House Democrats, along with conservative libertarians, actually did repeal it before their bill died in the Senate. Well, there's a broad consensus in the Democratic Party now, and even among quite a few Republicans, that a lot of our military interventions have not been authorized. Congressman Ro Khanna helped write the repeal bill in the House. And that it is not correct to rely on authorizations going back to 2001 or 2002, when few people were in Congress or currently serving, to justify these wars. Joe Biden would have a chance to be historic in modern times by reasserting congressional prerogative on matters of war and peace. And as a longtime senator, a President Biden might be uniquely prepared to do it. With that done, step three in our Middle East playbook is one we should have taken a long time ago. Align our policies with our values. Because remember what Rula Jabril said. If you don't tie your issue of foreign policy in terms of promoting the rule of law, human rights, and justice, you will always have backlashes. She's right. And to me, that means we stop offering money, weapons, and political support, carte blanche, to regimes that brutalize their own people. Chris Murphy has led the charge against giving a blank check to one of those regimes, Saudi Arabia. Trump's perspective on Saudi Arabia is that anything that Saudi Arabia believes is good for them must be good for the United States. That is fundamentally not true. It has never been true, but it is probably less true today than ever before. If we pick and choose where we join the Saudis, the sky's not going to fall. The Saudis aren't going to walk away from us. They're not going to stop selling oil to us. And we'll send a signal to other dictators around the world that if you run afoul of U.S. interests, then that's where our alignment and our alliance ends. We need to send that signal fast. Because right now, more than ever, there's so much at risk if we don't. It undermines everything. Jason Resign was a Washington Post bureau chief in Tehran. He was imprisoned by the Iranian government for years. He also worked with Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist whose murder was ordered by Saudi Arabia's crown prince. We've had this ongoing relationship for uh, decades. It's not as though folks at the State Department or in previous administrations or in Congress 
had no access to what was going on inside of Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, they didn't start public beheadings uh, just last year. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. What's different now is that we have a better window into all societies of the world, right? And a better understanding of what's going on. And so I think not actively standing up and condemning some of the worst behaviors of these regimes essentially gives off the impression to the world, which may have already been true, that our security and business interests trump our ideals. Probably, you know, a fair argument to be made in that direction for every administration going back to the beginning of time. But as we say, it's much more transparent. And the backlash this time could be against democracy itself. If that's the way we're going to run things, it's completely natural that the rest of the world is not going to look at us any differently as they do China or Russia. And what we had going for us before was this rhetorical notion that we're different. Whether that was ever true or not, I'd love to get back to the time when the rest of the world actually believed it was true. Yeah. Me too. We can't fix the Middle East or undo our mistakes. But if we take these steps, re-engage Iran and the AOMF, make human rights a guiding principle, we'll at least be headed in the right direction. Ultimately, though, the hardest change America will have to make is our mindset. Confronting the all-consuming fear of terrorist attacks that lead us to launch these wars and back these brutal regimes in the first place. Avril Haines was Obama's deputy national security advisor. If Joe Biden is elected, she's already been picked to run his foreign policy and national security transition team. To my mind, the challenge of counterterrorism is less about the actual specific threat, but more the reaction of society. Because as tragic as the particular attacks are, it's the fact that the society has such an enormous reaction to it that really ultimately ends up justifying the amount of time and, and money and effort that we spend on these issues. Domestic terrorism is a far greater threat than international terrorism. It's still a lot more likely that you get shot by, you know, a common criminal, essentially, than that it would be a terrorist incident. So trying to right-size the way people perceive it is the sort of great challenge that everybody tries to work through in this context. A first step, she says, stop calling it a war on terrorism. All of the words that we use, all of the ways in which we express ourselves, everything else is framed in this very hyperbolic perspective, right? It's a war, we're at war, that's an existential threat, that's something that needs to be addressed from that perspective. I think that adds to the problem. Yes, there is a threat from terrorism that has to be taken seriously. I get it. I was in New York. I witnessed 9-11 with my own eyes. But after a pandemic has killed more Americans than any terrorist ever could, now is the time to reset our priorities and our approach. John Brennan. I think we have regularly underutilized those elements of American soft power, our educational, scientific, cultural, technical capabilities that I think we should be able to leverage much more readily around the world. Because I, I do think that speaks more to what America is as opposed to U.S. military dominance. That means we stop treating the young people of the Middle East as potential terrorists and start helping them transform their region for the better because that's what they want to do themselves. Remember Mohammed Sultan? As dark as that Egyptian prison got, what kept him from becoming another ISIS recruit 
was his faith in a cause bigger than himself, something he was reminded of by a friend's younger sister. She made me a little bracelet and she sent it to me and, and um, it had a, a verse from a song which translated to like, if we stop dreaming, we'll die. So long as we continue to have this dream, this dream of having a dignified life for all Egyptians, for all people, human rights, rule of law, democracy. I think history will be on our side. Time is on our side. We're young, and this is a dream that we fulfilled once, and if we fulfilled it once, we'll fulfill it again. That sounds a lot like what we used to call the American dream. In word and deed, we should be reminding the world's young people constantly that it's a dream we share. So they're inspired to free themselves. And so we can be freed from fighting them or fearing them forever. Next time on Missing America, immigration and xenophobia. Welcoming immigrants was once central to the American story. Now, as migrants flee from the chaos that we helped create in the Middle East, we're leading the charge in rejecting them. I'm putting the people on notice that are coming here from Syria as part of this mass migration, that if I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you, they're going back. What that means for us and the world next week. Missing America is written and hosted by me, Ben Rhodes. It's a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Rico Galliano is our story editor. Austin Fisher is our associate producer. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Ramirez. Production support and research from Nimi Uberoi and Sydney Rapp. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko. Original music by Marty Fowler. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Tanya Sominator. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. Thanks for listening. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.